Welcome to Walls of Time, field interviews with the best in bluegrass. Alan Mills is the founder of the seminal bluegrass band, The Lost and Found. As a band leader, songwriter, and bass player for this important group, Alan has had a powerful and positive impact on friends and fans both through his music and his fun-loving personality. In this interview, recorded in front of a live audience at the International Bluegrass Music Association's annual conference in Raleigh, North Carolina in 2019, host Daniel Mullen sits down with this living legend to talk about his musical history and legacy. The day before, Alan was honored by the IBM with a Distinguished Achievement Award for his lifetime of work within the bluegrass music industry, and this episode spotlights why he was so deserving of this honor. Hear more about the journey of Alan Mills and this heartfelt exchange on this special bonus episode of Walls of Time Bluegrass Podcast. I hope many of you recognize this man on stage with Daniel. If you know anything about bluegrass, you know about the seminal band Lost and Found, of which this man is the founder, singer, bass player. And he was honored by IBMA yesterday with a Distinguished Achievement Award. Yeah, about dang time, too. And we're going to spend the next hour with uh, Daniel here catching up and talking. Uh, This is Daniel Mullins here, if you guys know him already. Hi, everybody. He's going to spend the next, uh, we're going to be doing, we're going to be recording this for a future broadcast. So we're going to right. do some plugs and things like this. So, so you'll get to hear uh, this on, a po- on the Walls of Time Bluegrass podcast when we roll out season two. So you might hear yourself and we'll even take some questions from the audience at the end. So if you got any questions, anything you've always been dying to ask Alan, uh, we will have questions at the end. The Walls of Time Bluegrass Podcast is brought to you by Samson's Hair Care. It's a new all-natural hair pomade out of Michigan. It's barber-made. He, what, he, what happened is folks would come into his shop, and he couldn't find a hair product that worked on people's hair the way he thought it ought to work. So he made his own, and it is awesome. And you can ask my girlfriend, Santana Bell. It smells wonderful. So she, she loves it. Um, uh, so, fellas, just saying, it might help you a little bit, but does a great job, has an all-day hold. I wore it to Dollywood, rolled roller coasters all day, and my hair still looked great. But it doesn't leave it all crunchy and greasy and oily, so you want to check it out. Go to samsonshaircare.com, use code BLUEGRASS, and you can save 10% off Samson's hair care. It's, it's the real deal. It's pretty awesome. Smell right. that, Alan. Tell them how good it smells. Yeah, I'm familiar with that. We used to call that slide them slick. <laughs> slide them <laughs> Yeah. Ready to go? Yeah. We're good to record there. Please, World of Bluegrass, make welcome a living legend in bluegrass, Mr. Alan Mills. Thank you. All right, Alan, the name of this episode and the, the name of this event is Alan Mills' Love of the Mountains. Great song that you wrote and the Lost and Found recorded. Larry Sparks had a hit on it as well. What about the mountains that you grew up in in the Blue Ridge Mountains do you love so much and has impacted you throughout your life? Well, I think uh, if you dig in your heart, there's certain things that you have a lot of respect for. And uh, the mountains have always been to me. They can shelter you. They can laugh with you. They can cry with you. They're your companion all the time you're in them. And when you get away from them, you want to get back. 
That's exactly right. You, you, now, you grew up in the, the Blue Ridge Mountains, correct? I grew up in the flatlands around Danville, Virginia. That's where my parents were there. Uh, and it was for economic purposes of being associated with Dan River Mills Incorporated. Yeah. If, 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 let me see, if it's anybody here about 102 years old would know what we talk about when we say Dan River Fabrics. It was the old cotton mills. That hey, found we, it. we got some hands yeah, up. Yeah, look at that. But I bet his wife knows about them sheets and pillowcases too. They were good <laughs> ones. And the ladies knew about the ginghams, and and it was a it was a way to make money. And that's, I grew up in that area there. Okay. Yeah, and the uh, the music uh, was fairly rich in that area. It wasn't too far up the road. There was Charlie Poole in North Carolina Ramblers, the old yeah. timers from over around Leaksville, Spray, and Draper, North Carolina, where. It's just, that was cotton mill towns too, you know. Yeah. But all of that people, all those people were hillbillies. And a lot of those people that came to Dan River work came from up in Franklin County, yeah. Floyd County, and if they come down there to seek money. And uh, there's like all the people come to your part of the country. There's people left Kentucky, Tennessee, and West Virginia, went to Ohio and Michigan to make money. Yeah. When they left home, they got all the kids and the cow and the guitars and went north. And that music flourished well up in that part of the country too as well. Some of the same aspects is where I grew up. Yeah. It, it was not as uh, heavily populated as you were there, but I've seen some awesome times uh, and some great things uh, in, in that part of the country. Uh, it, it was very interesting to me. And right after the war, uh, the radio opened up. Mm -hmm. Uh, the FCC opened up little frequencies. You know, you could get a 500 or 1,000 watt frequency, and they began to spring up just, just almost like mushrooms in the field somewhere. <laughs> they was there, you know, and a lot of them, I mean, would cover the whole town. They would at least go five miles all the way around where it was, you know. Yeah. And you get out of that, and they said, What happened? Did you turn your radio down? Uh, no, you just can't get it out here, you yeah. know. <laughs> but uh, it was an interesting thing. And WDVA was 12.50 on the AM dial, went on the air there, uh, somewhere in like maybe 1946, seven, eight. And uh, it was a fellow about the size of that one right there. Was, was a man was named C.C. Finch. That wasn't him walked by because <laughs> he died in 52. He's still living. <laughs> I think he's living. He looks, he looks like he is. Take him shades off so people know who y'all. That's Josh That's Swift from Dole Lawson and Quicksilver. <laughs> But uh, the, at that particular time, you, you know about radio, it was not zeroed into no one particular thing. Yeah. There was, there was morning radio and there was coffee time and doing all that and maybe midday uh, they would do some things and later on the afternoon it would be, and WPAQ in Mount Airy still does a sundown serenade. Oh, we got Play some, some WPAQ fans over there. Yes, sir. You can, you can hear Ben Crosby on WPAQ at about 5.30. If you turn it on, and that that span of the music was it was so broad at that time, and and uh, that station there at WDVA uh, began to do, and like the, like you saw on the thing on the the Ken Burns thing, the barn dance thing come about. Yeah. So that was a place where we could see a lot of people. I had the chance to go see at the barn dance the Leuven Brothers. Oh wow. Yeah, and and the. Oh, I guess it might have been 55 or 6, 54, 5 or 6, maybe somewhere along in there. Yeah. They didn't stay very long, but they, they moved on. And, 
in later years, uh, that through all of that facility, I had a chance to shake hands and some girl begged to tell me to take my blazer off to let Jim Reeves so he could go out and dance with her. Wow. He didn't accept, yeah. <laughs> but she asked and begged and I took my blazer off. I'm thinking if he's brave enough, I am too. <laughs> and the great Ernest Tubb, I sat down on the back bench and he told me about his love of Jimmy Rogers and talking to the music that he'd done there. And uh, there was an old boy, there was a bus driver on Johnny Wiggins. He, he was he was right. He drove the Green Hornet, and he was there. And later years, I renewed an acquaintance with Johnny over at the Fire in the Mountain in the mountains over there, you know. But it seems that the mountain music, and as we've seen on the Ken Burns thing, those Scott Irish people there that brought that music and the love, and they sought the same environment they were in there, and they come to the mountains. Yeah. And that's that's. Uh, my daddy was a flatlander, but my mama was raised in the mountains. Really? And I guess it's just, it's in you. Uh, I, as soon as Deb and I bought property and moved up there, it was like a soothing thing come over me. So that was, you know. And so it is that it was, and I'm still there. I've lived there longer than any place I've ever lived in my life. We, we bought that property in 1980, moved in 81. And uh, I still open close the door there every day. Yeah. Yes. It's just something about it. If 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 it's in your heart, it, uh, it's, it's it's in your genes, I guess, or something like that. You know, it's it's the same way with your grandpa, mm -hmm. and it'll be with your daddy one of these days too. It's it's that long, and for where you come from. Yeah. So you can't you can't beat your heritage. Just accept it. Yeah. There you go. <clears throat> oh. Man, I didn't think I'd get to crying this early, Alan. Uh, oh, uh, what, was you, what was your childhood like? How many siblings did you have? How did you guys grow I, up? They didn't. When I got there, I said, cut it out. Be no more of that. <laughs> yeah. One's enough. <laughs> so I was, I was the Lone Ranger way before he was, you know. I, I was it, you know. I, uh, I had... A, a lot of children, you know, I grew up around. Of course, I was, we, was, we was not too far, about six, eight miles out of the city limits of Dandle is where I actually grew up. But uh, it, it was a, a good childhood and uh, not too much different. Uh, my dad loved toiling in the ground. He absolutely loved to uh, plant something and harvest it, you know. We, yeah. And tobacco was a crop that we could grow. The, Brightleaf flu cured tobacco, like is in this part of the area of Raleigh, was it was a cash crop, and that's what yeah. it, you know, different people had different things for cash crops that you've done. But uh, he loved the toil and gardening, loved dogs, loved fox dogs. And uh, he, some of my earliest remembrance and pictures, as I was about this high with one of them little. 1947 hats on, you know what I'm talking about? Like one, what do you, I don't know what kind you call them, but it's pretty, pretty nice little hat. You know, me standing there between two dogs that have been licking me in the face all the time, you know. So uh, I, have a, I have a close uh, feeling for dogs that licks. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned your dad was a tobacco farmer. Well, if it was just you, you probably had to work quite a bit that you all didn't have any you didn't have any siblings to help in the fields did you well uh we uh dad 
uh, had we'd grown up. Dad was like family farms. Uh, his grandfather homesteaded about 500 acres, and as he grew wow. older, he had to one give one son property down by the river, another one up next to the house, and and give my grandfather uh, a little bit up the road there. You know, well when you divide that 160 acres up amongst more children, what do you do? You go to town and get your job because you can't make a living for all of that, and that's and that's what was the case. Uh, 1942 until 46, I believe, we lived at the home place where Dad was raised at. My dad oh, was wow. a, my dad was a squatter. He lived and died within a mile of where his his grandfather lived and where his father lived, and he lived. My, they were just in that three generations. It was just squatters. He didn't get go anywhere, you know. Yeah. It's just he he loved to travel, and uh, but he never never he wanted to come home at night, you know. It's, yeah. That that little piece of ground he had was home, so he wanted wanted to go to bed there, you know. Yeah. In nineteen forty six, I remember I was what eleven years old? No, nine years old. Yeah, how old was I in nineteen forty six, Don? You remember? <laughs> <laughs> uh, another dear friend here from Florida, Don Wilson here, that we oh, enjoy wow. his friendship with a lot and uh but uh there were some fellows that Daddy grew up with uh, in the Danville area, younger men. Mm-hmm. One of them had a 39 Chevrolet, and they said they was going to Nashville to see the Grand Ole Opry. So Mama had a little arch-top Philco table model radio that we had listened to all the times during the 40s at the house. And, uh, he jumped in the car with them guys and said he was going to Nashville, and they made the trip down. So I had a cousin that uh, was uh, pretty close to my age. He might have been a year older than me, something. So he come to the house to spend the night with me, the old home place where Daddy was raised up now. And we we sat up and listened to the Grand Ole Opry. And uh, I could hear every once in a while, if, if Monroe come on, I could hear somebody laughing. I said, I know that's Daddy. I'd tell his laugh right there, you know. <laughs> yeah. And how gullible can you be, you know, when you, you can just, it's all in your head. You was entrenched in that, you know. But, yeah. And he come home and described us what it was like to see the opera and all the excitement was going on there, you know. So that just kept the fire burning more, you know. Yeah. Daddy loved the music. Uh, Charlie Monroe was in these parts of the Carolinas. Yeah. Along in the 40s and in, in the Greensboro and Winston-Salem. And he had that Manorese show. It's called, and he was on every day about noon. And... Uh, in 1942, when we was living not too far from where Dad was raised up, he was Dad was working for Dan River, had a 31 A model Ford coupe with a little rumble seat back, you know, and took that out. That's where you hold the chicken feed in back there, you know. <laughs> but uh, use it for a truck, whatever. But uh, Charlie Monroe, Daddy would listen to him in the noonday jamboree every day. He, we'd lay down in the floor at noontime every day. And as we was working in the farms, whatever it is, and he'd lay down and put his arm out. I said, you want to lay on my arm? I said, yeah. I lay over there, and I'd get to wiggling, and he'd thump my head. The hardest I've ever felt in my life. <laughs> Wouldn't say a word, but that told you to be quiet and be still while Charlie Monroe was on. <laughs> so in 1942, Daddy announced that 
we were going to Martinsville, Virginia, to Joseph Martin School to see the Charlie Monroe show. And uh, I remember he took the lens off of that A model and took soda, polished the lens, and got it all fixed up. And it wasn't too far from being a candle, light. But he was brave enough to drive at probably about 22 miles at night to go see Charlie Monroe. And it's like a circus going on. There was <laughs> people running here, some of them dressed up all kind of ways. And, and I mean, it was a something. Of course, Charlie Monroe uh, announced two carloads of fun and music. That's, that was his thing on the radio. <laughs> two carloads? Yes, sir, Reed. Because <laughs> that's what they had to travel in, two yeah. cars, you know, because it had a, had a bunch of people there. But he was uh, uh, a big in inspiration for my thinking of the music. Yeah. At, at, at that early time, and of course we listened to it on while he was in either in Greensboro or either in, in Winston Salem, WSJS. And, mm -hmm. and uh, but uh, the the touring with those things and coming to see them, and later on it's it's just kept kept growing, and growing on you. You know, when I found some boys that uh, was going to play a little music, you know, I said yeah, I might go hang out with y'all a little bit, you know. <laughs> so. Well, you said Charlie Monroe was a big influence. What, what were some things about Charlie's music and his stage presence and his picking and singing that, that uh, you tried to adapt when you, when you started learning how to there play was, music? There was three people that, uh, to me, it stood out maybe as some of the best. Charlie Monroe, with, with his uh, carrying the show, introducing his band and his songs, Porter Wagner and Lester Flatt. And if it gets any better than them three, I want you to show them to me. <laughs> they are absolutely the best. When they're on, you, they, you just, for some reason, you want to listen to what they're doing and see yeah. what they're doing, you know. Well, in those three as well, I mean, you've, been, you've got a reputation as being one of Bluegrass's best MCs ever on how to run a show and MC a show, and those three were masters at it. Lester Flat could say the most with the least amount of words of any man that ever spoke in a microphone. Yeah. And when he said, now here's Earl Scruggs with the old five string. That told you about a week's worth of knowledge you need to know <laughs> right there. It, it was all. You didn't need to know nothing else. Just pay attention. Yeah. Oh, man. I mean, they, and uh, stuff like that got into me some kind of way or another, you know. Yeah. And, and we, we realized that less is more. And all and, and your music or anything else, if you do it, and and all th three of those people had one thing at heart, and that was the people that come to see them. Their love for the fans and the people, they realize it, that that's what kept them where they were. Yeah. And it's still to this day when you when you get where you ain't got time to talk to the people that, uh, and dance with the one that brung you, yeah. you better sit down and rethink. Exactly right. You, Lost and Found's reputation for 40 years is one that took care of their fans, and you you had a heart for all those that spent hard money to buy your records and come see you pick, didn't you? They they were important. They they had a life just like anybody else, you know. And a lot of times you you were on the same page as they were, you know. And yeah. it's, it's it's just necessity that that I did. I just I just feel the love for people. Yeah. And uh, that's that's bottom line. Good Lord put me on this earth to eat and love somebody. Yeah. <laughs> so I've been doing a pretty job on it. Yeah. <laughs> I was telling somebody, I don't know, uh, 
somebody wrote a publication, I think it's a lady in that uh, Crooked Road book. I didn't realize she come to the house and I was really wound up and full of it one day. And I, you know how little old cigarette packs was there? About the size of your phone. So I didn't pay no attention to her. And I told her, I said, I made a solemn oath to myself in 1977 that I was going to make a living playing music or starve to death. And when I weighed this morning, I was already down to 245 pounds. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you can kind of connect the dots there, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let your imagination get together there. <laughs> I'm a dwindling away all the time. <laughs> oh, so you said you know, growing up, going to the barn dances, seeing Charlie Monroe, it kind of you got the you got bit by the bug early, as, yeah, as boy, they would yeah, say. Boy. Yeah, Charlie Monroe, you know, was, was in the Carolinas in the 40s. Mm -hmm. uh, the Monroe brothers and the Marsh brothers were on WPTF in this town of Raleigh in 1938. They were doing a uh, morning thing from 6 to 6.15. Mm -hmm. I had a chance to visit with Zeke Morris over in Old Fort, North Carolina mm -hmm. on several different occasions. And they were on, one was on one time, one 15 minutes, and they would all gather at the station before six o'clock. And they would try to break one another up, harass some you, you then you try to do your thing and they doing all these <laughs> things to you know to try to make you forget what you're doing, whatever you know. And Zeke said that they would stay all of them stay together till six thirty and they would drag race through town here to a restaurant to eat breakfast. Zeke said he had a thirty seven Ford and said Bill had a, a Terraplane, Hudson Terraplane. And he said, from one stoplight to the other, he said, I could tear him up. But <laughs> said, if he ever missed a stoplight, the bill was gone with that Terraplane. You know. he's, he's getting through the country there. And a little old stories around those people, you know, that I just, you know, embeds in you a whole lot. And uh, the area where I lived in in Danville is not a long ways from the Raleigh area here. And uh, the, the music on WPTF, I never got to hear a lot of it later in the day, but uh, and some of the early morning things I never hear too much, but, but it was a formative years for the music yeah. over in my part of the country. And uh, a lot of people from this area, uh, you know, was great. Clyde Moody uh, come from over his area around Marion, North Carolina, and, and worked some TV stuff around here, you know. And uh, I got a I played many a Saturday night with Clyde Moot at the barn dance in Danville. And uh, Clyde was, uh, he went from Danville to Washington and worked with Connie B. Gay, was, was some of the instigators of the Country Music Association, you know, and that, all that stuff. That's something that Ken Burns didn't get into, maybe he will one of these days, but uh, <laughs> just, just all of that aspect. He couldn't get it all in. Could well, I guess not. <laughs> done a pretty good job on yeah, it. Yeah, he did. Did a pretty good job. Sure did. Uh, what was the first instrument you learned how to play? Well, I got out of service in, in uh, 1957. Before I'd gone into uh, service, I had a, I'd bought a, a little Bell Comet mandolin, I believe. It had little screens around it. Uh, and then, uh, I'd, I'd learned where, where to put your fingers up here and make, make a G, you know. Yeah. And uh, which of course, the boys was playing music. And then after I got out of service in uh, 57. Uh, Thank I you for your service, by the way. Thank you, sir. Uh, ben Eunice Music was down on Union Street in Danville. And uh, 
there was a record store and they sold some instruments. And uh, they had a, a little uh, A40 Gibson, I believe it was, uh, a little like a teardrop mandolin, you know. So I bought that thing. I think it seemed to me like I'd give $95 for it. <laughs> Brand new, son. Shine, look pretty. So I would, I'd go to harassments up here again. <laughs> I'd, go to, I'd go to the dance, play a little rhythm with them, something like that. And uh, somebody said, boy, it'd be nice if we had a bass fiddle. I said, uh, I got an uncle I think knows where one is. So I sought out to ask him, and uh, he was uh, a bachelor for probably until he's 40 or 50 years old before he ever got married, you know. And, uh, so he had money to have a bass then, right? Well, he didn't have one, but he said, I know where one of them tricks are. He said, oh, okay. that's what he called, called a trick. You know where one of them tricks are. So we went to Rocky Mountain, Virginia, and found a uh, 1947 K bass was laying in a little trailer up there. And uh, he said, fellas, said he'd take $50 for it. I said, boy, you ain't got 50 you could let me have, have you? Well, he said, yeah. So he bought it and brought it home, and and uh, I got that thing and started fooling with it a little bit, and I monkeyed with it for about a year or so, and finally come to the house one day. He said, uh, I might uh, take that trick home. I said, let me see if I can find you $50. <laughs> so I paid him for the bass, and, and I, I kept that thing for a long time and learned to play. There was some fellas lived up the road not too far from where I was, was gathering on a Wednesday night. It was a Cliff Ragsdale was playing bass for Jim Eanes in Martinsville at the VFW on Saturday night. So I'd go up there and I carried my bass up there and Cliff said, ain't too bad. He said, most of these things have four strings on them instead of three. I said, oh, I said, well, where'd you get one? He said, well, you have to go to town, you know. So I learned the hard way, son, let me tell you. I learned the hard way. <laughs> So uh, I, I started, went and got my bass head, uh, had four strings on it. And at another time, I learned the reason why it wasn't with three strings on there. In 1962, I believe it was, or it might, it might have been 60, might have been, I don't know, was it either 62 or 66? Uh, Carlton Ralph Stanley come through Danville. I was living there, had Goat Lambert with him, mm -hmm. and that's all he carried with him. <coughs> so Homer T was a uh, radio station and uh, MC, played the country music, and did the barn dance. So we gathered up, and if somebody was coming to town uh, and I knew anything about it, I want to know what time he's going to get there. I want to see him get out of the car and what they look like and this, that, and the other. And, and I learned way before Carl Malden ever said it by chance, but don't leave home without it. You, you carry it with you everywhere you go, you know. So my bass fiddle was in the car. So he got out and stretched a little bit and <coughs> got the instruments out. And he's, Carter said, Homer, it was, uh, is, is anybody here you reckon would knock a little bass with us? He said, that boy right there does, Carter. I said, he plays bass. He's, Said, you reckon he'd play with us? And I said, yeah, I'll do it. I'll do it, you know. He said, well, we've got one in the trailer here. I said, I said well, I got mine in the car. I'll get it. It's okay. So I got my bass and come back, and Carter had his guitar on. He's talking to 
Homer T and turned around and played a G. I tuned the G string and a little bit he played a D and then I tuned the D string and in a few minutes he turned around and played a A, tuned the A string and I'm waiting but he never did play a E. He wasn't worried about that. That's when I found out the E string wasn't that important. <laughs> so Carter turned around to me a little bit, and he said, uh, we got a tune we've been doing. Would you want to go with us? I said, yeah. He started playing a little Wildwood Flower, and I got down through it and went through, you know, the F and the G and back to C. He said, I think that'll be all right. So that was that's all the rehearsal I got with the Stanleys on that night. But I was a Clinch Mountain boy one night. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> Do you ever feel like the hustle and bustle of life keeps you from accomplishing your goals and staying on track? Have you ever felt exhausted at the end of the day, but yet feel like you've accomplished nothing? Help focus on your goals and stay on track with a self-journal from Best Self Co. Whether you're starting your own business, a college student, or you're just feeling overwhelmed with day-to-day life, the self-journal is packed with tools to help you get more done. With features including daily planning, a 13-week roadmap for your goals, inspirational quotes, daily and weekly habit tracking, and a place to record morning and evening gratitude. Best Self Co. offers a line of productivity tools to help you accomplish more. Check out all of their products at bestself.co. Use code Bluegrass to save 15% off of your first purchase. That's bestself.co, code Bluegrass to save 15% off your first purchase. You said yesterday, what was it, 1973 when you started the Lost and Found, right? I had worked with Homer T. and that organization there and the Seabird, and they was, it was just a dance hall, you know, it was all it was, you know, it was just, just a big old building with a stage and... You started playing it, uh, I think we did uh, radio. You actually worked from 8 to 12. And uh, after we started doing that place there, you didn't get no intermission. It was just constant. You know, if you had to go to the bathroom, somebody else play this till I get back, you know. That, that was the deal on it. So uh, it was uh, it was an interesting time, fun time, uh, to get to, to do the the dance thing, and then Gene Parker had, uh, uh, I got to know Gene early on because he was playing a bunch with Jim Eanes at that time. And I told uh, Gene had come down and play some banjo because all we, all we use the banjo for was square dances. The rest of the time, he'd go in the back room and sit down. Gene's laying back on the couch with his banjo up on his stomach and playing it, you know, like that. Someone holler, hey, Gene, square dance time. Here he come, you know. <laughs> and uh, they... We'd, uh, we'd do that, and then uh, Gene got disinterested in the, that just, you know, same old thing like that every night, and he left, and then uh, I think it probably the early part of 73, I left, and of course, some of that let they do what they wanted to do there with that, you know, it wasn't nothing happening, nothing going on, so I was living in the Martinsville area at that time, so. Uh, a little bit later on, about August that year, he said, let's get together and pick some grass. I said, with who? He said, well, this boy down here at Laurel Park uh, plays some guitar pretty good. He says, Marvin McDaniel was his name. He said, I said, well, when are you, you going to do it? He said, well, 
Schoonan and Marvin's on Wednesday night, so we did. We went down and about second Wednesday night that we went down there and they beat around, knocked around a little bit there. And he said, it's a boy brought him out, he's a young boy. He said, he's, I think maybe about 18 years old. He don't play too good, but said, I believe he's gonna make a pretty good mandolin player. I said, well, bring him on down here. So he come down on that night and they played Red Apple Rag, I think, for 20 minutes. <laughs> Gene would play it and, and, and Dempsey would play it. Yeah, that mandolin player was Dempsey, Dempsey Young. Young. Yeah. Dempsey would play it and then, and then Gene would play it again and Dempsey, uh, uh, let me do it again. And they'd play it different every time, see what they could do different, you know. And uh, after that, I hoped they never would play Red Apple Rag anymore because it was, it was too long a version of it, if you know what I mean. 20 but, minutes is a lot of red uh, apples, yeah. ain't it? So, uh, you know, the rafters and uh, the walls of the basement, they got no hands. They don't applaud, you know, what you did, what you done, and nothing else, you know. So uh, I come through town there one day, uh, and the cable television was brand new just coming about. It was down on both sides of the high rent district in Martinsville, you know, down the street there, you know, and, and uh, the guy was in there and he'd do local news, whatever it was, and I, I jumped in and told him, I said, hey, how about some bluegrass on your TV here? He said, okay, when you want to start? Thursday? I said, uh, uh, let me get back with you on that. <laughs> Didn't have no idea he was going to accept it, you know. So here we, we had to get, Marvin announced that he wasn't going to be no part of the no TV thing, you know, because he, he had a job with the Department of Highways and he didn't want to be seen and talked about or whatever. So right off the bat, we had to get a uh, guitar player. So Dempsey said, Roger Head ain't doing nothing. He said, bring him. So we rehearsed for about a week every night there till we could get about six songs to do on that 30 minutes TV thing. Well, here we, we found out that uh, we, could, they, we had to do it live on Thursday night, and they would record it and would go back and they'd play it on Friday night. Man, we was calling, hey, y'all got cable? We want to come over and see our show. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it was a big learning experience, big learning experience with that, because I had, I had all kind of things to do I'd watch the TV shows. I'd watch Flat and Scruggs. Uh, I could just about do that whole show by myself with them. If I had Earl, Paul yeah. Warren, and Josh and Jake, I could handle the rest, you yeah. know. <laughs> Tell Flat, stand over there, stand over here, and I'll talk. <laughs> but uh, it was, uh, we, we started doing that, you know, and, and you know, being in radio, that it, it's promotion. Yeah. Radio is promotion. Totally, and that's what makes the wheel go round. Bluegrass is a business. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, but uh, it, it's got to be promoted and, and yeah. whatever you got to do. So, so I uh, set out and, and had to sell the show to keep it going because somebody yeah. had to, and found the local radio disc jockey there, Lewis Compton, that had wrote Sawing on the Strings, if you know bluegrass music. Yeah. He wrote that, and uh, he had. Uh, Spent, he did some radio, you know, television, radio in town. He did a little TV show with us, you know. And, you know, it's probably 150 people maybe saw that. But it spread out and it set the fire a little hotter with us that want to do it. All right, in 74, Buddy Pendleton 
announced that uh, he had been uh, given a little grant to do some state parks, Virginia state parks. And uh, so we agreed to work with him uh, in about three state parks in Virginia. So I learned right off that, uh, and, and doing them shows there, from the greats that I had remembered, that you've got to keep the attention of these people. If they don't, they just get up and leave like them other two did over there. <laughs> of course, we, we understand they had to go to the bathroom too, you know. Yeah. <laughs> it's always a reason. So you, you keep incorporate into your thoughts, you know. Yeah. But uh, we were doing those state parks and people would be from everywhere. Be some, might be some from Charleston, West Virginia, might be somebody coming through from San Diego. So it was, uh, how, do you, how do you get those people to be interested in what you're doing? You, you gotta do something that's on the same level. You gotta get on, everybody's get on the same page some way or another. So I found out that we could do, the Beverly Hillbillies had been real hot, you know. And uh, everybody, oh yeah, yeah, we know about that, I said, well, there's a TV show Lester Flat and Earl Scruggs did, you know, and they, and uh, we had worked a little deal up how we remember the Martha White show, you know. So we we scratched off and and I told him this way we remember it, you know. And Dempsey would take the fiddle and he'd do the intro, you know. You make right with Martha White, ah, uh -huh, you know. We'd we'd get the whole deal done now, you know. Then we'd we'd sing a little bit of Wonder How the Old Folks Are at Home, you know. And yeah. Do that and then. Then we'd, uh, we'd say, uh, now we're going over to the Martha White kitchen and see what's cooking. So Gene would go call Martha White, you know, Roger, he would come out with a big old scarf over his head, you know, and Gene said, Martha, can you tell us something about your wonderful hot rise? And his line was that if Martha can't make it rise, can't nobody. <laughs> so, but it got a after they, it went through, the thought what it was got a big laugh out of us, you know. <laughs> but uh, but we, we had their attention what it was, and the little comedy part of it was, you know, it, it, it was a lot of fun, you know. It was a, it was a learning experience that you communicate with. If, if, if I'm talking to you and, and, and I ain't making no sense, you got to go, you did somewhere else, you ain't, we ain't doing it. So you got to communicate with the people that you're with. Build it's that important. connection, yeah. Yeah, it's important. You mentioned being on the, on television. How long did you guys have that television show? About a year and a half. Un until until then, people got tired of paying money to do it, so we quit. So, I mean, if you're doing, what, six songs a week, you had to probably learn a lot of songs quickly so you didn't have too many repeats, right? Right, yeah. Well, Roger, was he was into the seldom scene so far. He didn't know what his name was. <laughs> He and the country gentleman and seldom seen. That's all we knew, you know. Yeah, Matterhorn and, and uh, you name it. And Roger knew them all, you know. He and he was a good baritone voice and, and knew the songs, you know. So all I had to do was just say, "Now here's Roger," you know. And yeah. but uh, and but we managed to work around with it, you know. And and uh, with the it wasn't at that time that that you had uh, that 21.4 minutes to do with your television and what you had that time. You know, the rest of the time was commercial time. We had the whole 29 minutes. Yeah. You had to do it all, so. And we, we did the commercials live and the whole bit, you know. So it was, 
there's just more learning, yeah. more learning experience of how to participate and, and do. And the bottom line of the whole thing is continue to give you what you need to do because you love it. Yeah. And if you don't love it, it won't take too long till the people know you they don't. You you can't fake passion. No, no, no. It won't. It'll show up on you. Yeah. It'll show up on you. Yeah. You got the the few. Who, who was it? Miss Minnie said told somebody at the opera, "If you love them, they'll love you back." That's great advice. That's that's good advice. Yeah. When you think of the lost and found, your songwriting is one of the first things people think of. Your guys' catalog of original material that didn't sound like anybody else is one of the most revered in this business. When did you start writing songs, and what was the first song you wrote for the lost and found? I guess the first song that I'd done was uh, I'd written Love of the Mountains. It's uh, pretty much a little uh, a tribute to my mama that was raised, mama was raised up by grandparents. Really? She, she never knew a real mother. Her mom died when she was a 18 uh, month old baby in 1921. Mm -hmm. And the mountain tradition is, and you dig back in your heritage back over there, uh, around Kentucky over at Frenchburg, you'll find out them old generations, should the mother die, that the grandparents would raise the child. Mm -hmm. And that's how my mama was raised. But she always referred to her grandparents as mama and papa. So in 1947, her grandma had passed away and granddaddy was misplaced. He didn't want to live here, didn't want to live there. So we were farming, raising tobacco. And she, she told my dad, she said, Bernard, what do you think about letting papa come down here and live with us and we'll give him about a half acre tobacco to keep him content. So he did and he lived with us from 47 until 51 when he passed away. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was, uh, I was sitting in my living room on a snowy January day, just sitting there looking at it, it began to snow a little bit. And I was thinking about that song, I was thinking about mama's childhood and what the deal was. Uh, and uh, that her her mama was buried up there in the little place that Deb and I went to later years at the cemetery had almost grown up. But my uncle carried me up and showed me exactly where she was to fill up your empty paces on your childhood and know what it's all about. But, mm -hmm. but uh, I was just thinking about it and uh, I'd had the first part of the song done pretty good, but I didn't have my chorus. So my phone rings and I say, hello. And there was a fellow named Hender Saul to the people at Cares and those in the link about the music had composed a song called One Teardrop and One Step Away mm. that Reno and Smiley had recorded, you know, and he lived just across town a little while. He said, can you come over here? I said, and it's snowing at my house. He said, ain't snowing a bit over here. He said, I got some people down in High Point wants to meet you. I said, well, I'll run over there a little bit. So I scratched off, went over and stayed. And of course, the reasons for me going, he was in decline in health at that time. And so I come back to the house and I was coming through the bridge and heading home and I had my course. Now a bright moon is shining in the valley and an old wagon leans against a stack of hay. Two graves on a hillside by a cabin. My mom and dad are resting there today and I didn't have nothing to write it on. And I don't know what driveway I went up to get into the house but lived in a, a housing development there. I run in the house and wrote that down before I forget them. And I didn't think too much about it. 
until Bill Vernon uh, had come to the, we was doing something around there somewhere, somebody's house, and uh, we played, had it, we done worked out the arrangement on it, and uh, Bill Vernon, after we after sung, he said, where'd that song come from? I said, well, I wrote that. He said, don't sing that in public anymore. I'm thinking, why? What, what was he thinking about? And what he, he didn't tell me, the rest of it is, have you got it copyrighted or published? And I didn't at that time, so I learned what, what I needed to do with that, you know. Yeah. It's your song, and you need to have some evidence to show where it come from and what yeah. it is. So that, to protect yourself. Yeah. So that uh, started me to find a way to keep up with it, you know. Yeah. Do a form PA, send it in to Library of Congress or whatever it is and get it documented so it, it's yours with a piece yeah. of paper or something, you know. Yeah. But uh, that was uh, the beginning of that song. And I, I was uh, had a, working with a fellow had a painting body shop. That was rubbing fenders, putting mud in it, fixing it up, painting, doing all that. And Lewis Compton would be on every day. That fellow that wrote Sawing on the Strings, he had a radio show right there in town, you know. And uh, we'd listen to him every day while he's doing that. And uh, I was just thinking about uh, an old fellow that I'd met on a Sunday morning. I was traveling right down the country, just a little Sunday morning ride. And he was sitting on the porch with his elbows on his knees. And he's real bad about sweetening up on Saturday nights, you know. Oh, he'd get, <laughs> he'd get friendly. What you talking about, he would. And he was hung over so far he couldn't get up that much, I don't know. So. But uh, I told uh, my wife, was with me, I said, I'll bet you if you stop and talk to that old boy and tell him that you're going to die, boy, today you ain't going to what would be your request. And he said, well, I wish I had one more drink. So I couldn't tell it that way, so I just had to put the story together for day was the last day. <laughs> the Wild Mountain Flowers uh, is uh, some people I knew in Danville. There was a gentleman, a lady that was sweethearts but were never married. She passed away, then gentleman lived his entire life, was never ever married. And uh, I just, just a little simple story. Yeah. Simple things last, and, and uh, if, if, if it's something to, to back it up, you know, yeah. I think it means a lot more than, than just to say something, you know. Yeah. It's hard. To, I, can't, I, I can't, uh, can't just write the thing. Fiction, I, I can't read fiction because I'm reading what you thought instead of what I thought or what is real. Yeah. You know, I, 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 gotta, I gotta be in touch with something. I gotta have something to grab onto, mm -hmm. any kind of story, anything else. If I can't get in it and kind of be a part of it, something, I can't keep my attention on it. Yeah. I'm handicapped. <laughs> and I was gonna tell you a reason a while ago, there's a reason Lost and Found like it was because we couldn't, we couldn't sing like Carter Stan unless the flat in Monroe. So we had to do the best we could. Do your own thing. That's all we could do. That's and we was handicapped. <laughs> well, I got I got two more questions. Then we'll take some questions from the audience. That work? How did how did you guys get um, your deal with Rebel Records that helped promote your music um, to the to the bluegrass audience at large and make you you know real staples of the bluegrass scene in the in the 80s and 90s into the 2000s? I had uh, known about Rebel Records uh, early on, Dick Freeland and uh, the music they was doing out, the early scene stuff and all of that. Uh, and Dave Freeman uh, had just acquired Rebel, was living in the Roanoke area, 
and we had uh, recorded three albums with Rod Shively on Outlet, and uh, we was looking for ways to kind of get out of the basket, as per se, you know, and uh, Dave was, was doing some stuff, and so I went to Roanoke one day and uh, told him, I said, we got a project already done, finished, would you be interested? And he said he'd like to listen to it, and he did, and I went back, and he said, uh, okay, he said, we, we'll do an album, and uh, I shook hands with him just like I did over a while ago in 1980, and that's been my contract with Dave Freeman ever since. There's never been any question. Some of the people and artists talk about different things. You don't get paid, you don't do that. I get statements from Rebel Records constantly for exactly what the deal is. And I mean, if, if it's $2.82 and you, you, you don't, he gives you the change. It's to the penny every time. The, the, one of the best gentlemen to work with is Dave Freeman. And I, I have the utmost respect for he and Mark both with Rebel Records. They have been so big an asset to bluegrass music to give an artist like us a chance. And once we got there, and he said the California scene is really big, the market is big out there. So as early as 84, we was out running here, Jonathan, saying if we could tame some buffaloes or <laughs> do whatever, you know. But, and I found out that the road's hard, but it's still fun. Uh, I, I enjoy traveling and you meet different people from different areas and you'll find that same depth of love yeah. if they, with bluegrass music. Yeah. It's, it's just that there's a fellow here from Missouri who's a little hard-headed. <laughs> uh, like a bull, maybe. He's, he's kind of <laughs> like a bull. That's how I met him, is going to Missouri. He and his, he and his family. But uh, and if I'd never been for that getting out there, I would have never known. There's a fellow right there that uh, is, is a Canadian. I'd have never met him if it hadn't, hadn't been for traveling up there. So it's just, a, it's just an interesting concept to go around and to be among all these people. Morning to you, Mike. You doing good? <laughs> Who told you? <laughs> is that... That self-assumption, or did somebody tell you he's doing good? <laughs> So you've heard us talk about Samson's Hair Care's hair pomade with its all-day hold and signature smell. Now they have something for the other hair on your face, your beard. Fellas, I don't know about you, but I love sporting a beard. It makes me feel so manly, and let's face it, the ladies love it. However, what they don't love is a beard that's unkempt and out of control, and when you're scratching all day like a dog. That's where Samson's Hair Care can help you. They have a brand new beard balm and beard beard oil to help you regain control of your beard. The beard oil is all about stopping irritation. It makes the beard softer and moisturizes the skin underneath so you're not scratching all day. They also have their beard balm, which helps you regain control of your beard, help it lay the way it's supposed to so you don't have them wiry hairs sticking out, and it makes your beard softer as well. They have a brand new beard balm and beard oil at samsonshaircare.com, and they know that bluegrassers need to look 
look sharp. So that's why if you use code Bluegrass, you'll save 10% off. Whether you want the beard oil, the beard balm, the uh, Samson's Hair Care Pomade, or all three, check it out at samsonshaircare.com. Use code Bluegrass to save 10% off. It's all at samsonshaircare.com, code Bluegrass. Bluegrass musicians are, are, are persistent, and they you've withstand withstood so many bumps in the road in your career in bluegrass music for 40 years as that's part of being a band leader but you suffered a tragedy as a band leader that most people don't face in losing a founding member of your band unexpectedly passing away how did how do you find how do you how do you find the strength to keep going when something like that happens a tough question. Uh, the love for the music and what it was all about, what we had created, didn't go away. Mm-hmm. We just lost an important part. Yeah. Thirty-three and a half years of traveling, and and you don't forget that. Mm-hmm. Not not daily, monthly. That it don't go away. Mm-hmm. It's always, and that fella contributed so much. He was a stylist. Yeah. He was a creator, and he would try to do things, and he would make it work. Yeah. And as he grew, he grew richer in his uh, musical things. And he he had listened to all kind of musics, and uh, he found out that less is more. And so much of what you need to do, what you don't do, and uh, he. He was just a, a big part of life, you know. And uh, when you when you lose somebody of, of, of uh, Dempsey Young's uh, character, uh, you don't replace it. You just find maybe somebody can take up the banner and move forward, and that's what we've done. Yeah. When we, after Dempsey's passing, we had shows in, uh, with Norman Adams down in Georgia and uh, Scotty Sparks that said, there's one of probably two people that I know of can play Dempsey's uh, style of mandolin. He said that's John Keith and Scott Napier. And uh, so we we called uh, Scott, and he said uh, he was he could go with us to Georgia. So we went over two or three intros, and I found out that he had been listening to Dempsey a whole lot. Yeah. So it wasn't any problem. You know, you know this, you know the intro of this. I said, that's all I need to know. If you know the intro, we'll take it from there, you know. <laughs> and, uh, boy, that's, and it's been such a treat. Uh, it's, it's like nowadays, it's like your child. And you, you enjoy seeing that fella. And, and to see, you see what he's got right there, walking up there? <laughs> now, ain't that sweet? <laughs> One of the Price sisters that's right, right there. <laughs> that's right. That's, that's Scott's wife, yeah. Laura. And uh, them, them, it's just, it's just gratifying to, to see Scott. And that's why I told him, I said, I said, Scott, it's two or three little intros that we might want to do to keep the identity. But after that, you play what Scott feels. Don't try to do what somebody else does. You play how you feel, how you feel of what would work here and do it. And the boy, he's, I mean, it didn't take, he'd already had a good lesson from Larry Sparks too, you know. <laughs> It's it's got to be great for you to see all these mandolin players out there that keep Dempsey's style alive and was, point to him as a big influence. 
he is an important part of the development of how the mandolin is played yeah. in bluegrass music. Yeah. And you can't deny it because it's it's documented, it's on the record. Yeah. How you gonna get around it? <laughs> you just you just try to learn what how did he do it and why. Yeah. You don't have to play it like him, but the pattern's there. Yeah. So you you can go with, you know. And that to me has been just about as gratifying as anything else. Yeah. Is to see uh, live long enough to see something you've done that did make a difference. Yeah. Well, you definitely have made a difference on this industry. Uh, we, we're about out of time. We didn't even get to you helping found the International Bluegrass Music Association, which is why we're all here in Raleigh today. Real quick, do you think you could touch on part of the reason that you, you and others saw a need for bluegrass to have a professional trade association. I won't tell you exactly. My behind parts, good to see you, boy. But to watch that Atkins boy over here. <laughs> he, he'll, he'll spring Kentucky on you over there. <laughs> and uh, that was uh, some people out in Missouri and had moved into the Nashville area, was talking about uh, a national awards. And there was never any thought about Monroe or the Stanleys or the country gentleman, anybody else, it wouldn't. So how can you present national awards to the people like that? And it had been a growing concern and uh, so I, I was displeased with that. Uh, I talked to several other people in the industry about it, and, and Lance Leroy being in Nashville there, he said, you're right. He said, we need to correct that. We need to, we need to set the build straight who is and who ain't Nashville and, and where and what. And so we started to find and circulate with people here and there uh, I had a chance to talk with Ken Irwin one time we were up in uh, the Boston area at Cambridge and uh, then we, I was out in uh, Leveland, Texas talked to John Harden about uh, we needed to do something like that and he agreed and uh, so we decided that uh, I told Lance, I said Lance let's, we ought to call a meeting and see what we can do so I think it was maybe a June of 1985. Uh, I'd call Lance and we were getting ready to leave to go up to Colburn, Ontario. Uh, and I said, Lance, when are we gonna have that me? Oh, my boy, didn't I tell you it's gonna be Monday? <laughs> oh yeah, I said, darn. So I, the other boys took the bus and went home and I flew to Nashville. And that was the first discussion to sit down to see if we could form an organization and it began to start there with uh, Pete Kuykendall uh, and some of the other people around Nashville there and some of us that came in to uh, visit and talk and Dahl Awesome was there and was enough people of us to be on the same age. We later met a, another time and then I think about uh, maybe it was what October of that year uh, we had a meeting there and uh, Terry Woodward had come and told us if we wanted to found something, he would help us house it in Owensboro. So we decided that that, that would be, and uh, 
at the BMI building there on 16th Avenue there in Nashville. We sit out there to uh, sit down and do that. Joe Walker was the head of the Country Music Association, brought and laid out the CMA bylaws and give us a little track to pick from how they needed to be. So Randall Hilton and Doyle Lawson and myself sat down a little bit, and I didn't have nothing to do but stand out and look because they's reading faster than I was anyway. So, but they sought out and picked out some stuff and presented for some bylaws to get started. So that was the founding. It, it was a gratifying time for me. To see this organization become what it has has been probably one of the better gratifying things in my life to see, other than your children, you know. And your musicians around you, they they would probably come first. And these with this, and the little lady sitting right over there, she's my wife Debbie. Mom, do you want to be recognized? Yeah. That's that's been my whole reason for living since March the sixteenth, nineteen seventy nine. And she's. And, and I, I kid a whole lot of times. I tell a lot of people that uh, I married a girl who's got a real good job, and she's still got that job. <laughs> <laughs> we do have some time. Ty has, Ty's got a microphone. If anyone has any questions for Mr. Mills, you can come right over to, to Ty and, and ask away. I come out there a little bit. I've got a little bit of a line here. Anybody yeah, want to? Yeah, yeah. Anybody have a question? Just just raise your hand or... Uh... Can we first have just a big round of applause for legend yes. Alan Mills for spending some time with us this morning. Gotta, gotta meet you halfway. It's, did you see that old boy back there with his uniform on? He's been walking down Main Street today. Mike O'Reilly. Oh, Mike O'Reilly. A great songwriter from Canada. Mike, raise your hand so Ty'll know who you are right there. There he is. If you would, tell us your name and where you're from for the uh, podcast there. My name's Kathy, and I'm from Connecticut. And my question is, how did you start playing up north, and is that maybe because you met some of someone like Glenn Huffer? Rebel had uh, signed us on in 1980, uh, and we had uh, had some pretty good success uh, with a tune called Leftover Biscuits. And uh, Yeah! Knowing... <laughs> Knowing how, you know, gullible I am, I, don't, I ain't too smart, but I'm regular, if you know what I'm talking about. Uh, uh, I found, we got, we got to worry that we had a number one record, number one song in San Bernardino, California. And I said, man, this is cool. I mean, it's, it's something else. Well, probably somewhere in about 2000 or 2001, I went to California, went through San Bernardino, and it ain't big as nothing. So... You know, that's, that's, uh, but nevertheless, uh, it was inspiring, and that was some of the things. Uh, we had started, I'd met Glenn Huffer at, uh, I think, maybe Gettysburg, somewhere along the way, and he was doing shows there, and it's always that little trigger. If you're talking to somebody, you know, where do you live, what do you do, you know, and, and your computer's working, it's going click, click, click. She does a show on the radio, she needs to have my records, click, click, click. Does she promote a festival? No. Does she promote shows? Yes. Click, click, click. So you keep all that together and you communicate. And the Northeast is a good place to go 
uh, in the wintertime or summer either one, so they was doing shows. Another fine gentleman right there. There's, there's a base guru from where you come from there. Ron Shuffler. Yeah. He's a brother to the great George Shuffler. Yeah. A fantastic bass player. He's got his bass sticks in his hand. <laughs> I'll visit with you here in a little bit, son. Yeah. It's, it was just, just following what you needed to do uh, to go in the area that you hadn't been uh, and uh, your records was doing well and somebody was doing them here. So that's, that was our reason for coming. Uh, another reason that helped there was a fellow that lived real close to where I was, was living in Newtown. You know where Newtown is, just out there. Uh, he had came up that part of the country in about 1951, went to work with Sikorsky helicopter. And he brought with him the traits of his area there. He was a liquor maker, a moonshiner. <laughs> so he was making... So you guys got along real well then, right? <laughs> He was making whiskey and carrying them people down at Sikorsky, you know, on his side. So we would be on some of them festivals, and he would sell our records, and he'd tell these people, I'll give you a drink of this if you'll buy that record. We <laughs> sold good in New England. <laughs> we had another question right here, Ty. Thank you for the question. That's awesome. Alan, uh, oh, what's your name and where are you from? Oh, my, my name is Tom Keeney. I'm from Seattle, Washington. I've been a big fan of Lost and Found for a long time. The sound of the band Lost and Found has such a unique bounce to it and such a, it just puts a spark in your heart. It makes you smile. And you mentioned Dempsey's role in kind of playing the mandolin a certain way. What else, what else came about to help make that band sound so unique and when it got started and then how it changed over time? It's just, it's so, it's so pleasurable to listen to, and, and there must have been something in there that just clicked and kept going. You, you learn as you go along, and you can listen to anybody, uh, any musician, following from his, where he starts to where he goes to, and, and his growth, you learn what not to do and what to do. And you also learn to live with your uh, things that you're not capable of doing. Do the best you can with what you got. And that's the reason why I say again, we were handicapped. We couldn't do uh, what, uh, if I had a, could have done it, I would have been a, a Lester Flat and a Carter Stanley and a Bill Monroe all in the same it. And it didn't need to be nothing else, but I couldn't do that. So uh, I just had to learn. And the, you heard from somebody, if you was listening to the Ken Burns things, is, is talking about you, you need to learn to sing with the voice you got. And if it works, it does, and if it don't, it don't. It just, if it's a song you can't sing, don't do it, you know. So we, we learn from stuff like that, you know. And so with that in mind, uh, and all of us uh, in the band learning the value of that is what molds us into what we become. It was just uh, do your best with what you can, and. And, uh, and experiment as much as you can without getting out of hand. Do we have any more questions for, for Mr. Mills? Anybody just raise your hand. What's your name and where are you from? My name is Mitch Reynolds. I'm from Florida. And I have more of a statement than a question. It's just that you can't go to a bluegrass jam and not have somebody play an Alan Mills song. And I'd just like to state right here and right now, 
Alan Mills belongs in the Hall of Fame. Thank you, sir. Every time that anybody ever sings a song that I wrote, that is so gratifying, and I'm so humbled with the people's thoughts who want to do that. That's how. That's how. You, that's what keeps you alive. Is uh, and Grandpa Jones probably said it better in Fallen Leaves. The only thing you take with you is what you give away. And you've given us all a lifetime of music and a wonderful afternoon. Thank you so much, Mr. Alan Mills, for his lifetime of music with the Lost and Found. My founding this association. Been, been a treat, Daniel, to sit here and uh, be relaxed and, and visit with you and these wonderful people here. Yeah. These people came here because they love this organization and come to support it. Yeah. What's better? Can't top that. You can't top that. That's all. Let's give a round of applause for Daniel Mullins, our host for Walls of Time. And thank you again to bluegrass legend Alan Mills. Thank you guys very much. Walls of Time Bluegrass Podcast is produced by Ty Gilpin and Daniel Mullins, edited by Daniel Mullins, and is a production of Blue Poncho Media. Visit wallsoftimepodcast.com for more information.